Grace, mercy, and peace from you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Throughout Lent, during our midweek services, we're learning to pray the Psalms. In the last two weeks, we've had Psalms 1 and 2, which form an introduction to the Psalter. The book of Psalms is a highly complex book where various books interrelate to one another. Each section has its own purpose. It's really quite beautiful when you get to see the whole picture. And Psalm 1 introduces us to the entire thing. It's a Psalm of David, we know from the New Testament. It teaches us to pray for wisdom. And to pray to be like the one who is wisdom incarnate. Psalm 2 teaches us that Jesus is king over all things. And that all attempts to overthrow him, God laughs at, looks down upon. So in Psalm 1, we see Jesus as wisdom incarnate. Psalm 2, we see him as the king of kings. And throughout the Psalms, we both learn how to pray, but we also learn to see Jesus in these Psalms. Because ultimately, they're prayed perfectly in him. Isn't Jesus where the Psalms find their fulfillment? In fact, many of the church fathers thought that Jesus prayed the entire Psalter as he hung on the cross. And that Psalm 22, which we know he prayed on the cross, is the part they recorded for us in Scripture so we could hear that important psalm as it was spoken at that moment. Psalm 16 is a little different than Psalm 1 and 2. Psalm 16, another psalm of David, verse 1 tells us the context. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. Psalm 1 is, or Psalm 16 is a prayer for health, for safety, that God preserve his life in the midst of things that may kill him. And it's because of that that Christians have prayed this, and prayed this especially when they're sick. It's been an important psalm for those who are sick or struggling. We'll see especially, as we get to the final verses of this psalm, how it is fulfilled ultimately in Christ's resurrection for us. But the context is important. And we're praying that God will preserve us, keep us safe, keep us healthy. And it's in that context that we have to understand the rest of the psalm. It has three main parts. Verses 2 and 3 cover the two great commandments. Verses 4 through 9 cover knowing God's results in satisfaction and joy. And then finally, the last couple of verses teach us that God raises the dead and gives us gladness. So we're going to look at these three parts and how they help us to pray for God to preserve us no matter what it is we might be going through. Verses 2 and 3, as I said, cover the two great commandments. They express the psalmist's love for God, but then because he loves God, he loves Christians. He loves those who are the excellent ones, he says. They're his delight in all the earth. He loves those who love God's. The godly ones are the ones in whom his soul delights. Because if you love God, you're going to be offended by wickedness, which means we will be offended by the wicked, not kind of in the way our culture takes offense at everything, but that in their wickedness we see rebellion against God. And so love for God results in a love for his people. It's kind of an odd way to start. I mean, he's praying for God to preserve him, but think about it. He wants God to preserve him, and he immediately says, Look, O oh Lord, I'm, I'm striving to keep the two great commandments. I am striving to love you and to love my neighbor, and especially those who also delight in you. They are my delights. And then he gets to the heart 
of the psalm. The very heart of this psalm, that knowing God results in satisfaction and joy. And so, he switches. He says, I delight in those who delight in you. That is where my joy is. They are the excellent ones. And yet, those who chase after other gods, who offer up sacrifices of bloods, literally their drink offerings of bloods, them, their sorrows should be multiplied. Their troubles will be multiplied. They're chasing after other gods, and they don't get what they think they're going to get. I want you to preserve me because I know you can do it. All these other people are chasing after other gods, and look what the end result is. They're not preserved. They're destroyed. It leads to death and destruction. And so he says, I'm not going to be like them. I'm not going to offer sacrifices. I'm not going to try to manipulate them to do something for me because I know it's pointless. It does no good for me. It's nothing for me. Right? Throughout the Bible, we have, we have Psalm 115. We have Isaiah 44 where the idols are mocked. Right? You chop down a tree. You make some firewood out of part of it. You make a chair out of part of it. And then you fashion an idol out of part of it. You bow down and you worship it. And the Bible says, how ridiculous is that? The same thing you just made firewood and a chair out of, you're going to bow down and worship? It says those who worship their idols become like them. They become as uncaring, become as blind and deaf as the gods they worship. And even, even, as we see throughout history, they become as wicked as the gods they worship. Look at all the countries around Israel and all the wicked things they did because they worshipped the bloodthirsty gods. How many children were sacrificed? How much wickedness was done to appease their gods? Those who worship their gods become like them. And so David says, I'm not going to go seeking after them because I know, I know that they will not deliver on their promises. Instead, he says, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot." The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. He uses two very different image, images here. He uses one, my, the cup imagery, which throughout the Bible, there's the cup of blessing, right? The cup of blessing, God's blessing, his peace, his joy, his comfort, his goodness poured out for you. We, of course, think about that as Christians immediately. We think about the Lord's Supper and Christ's blood given to us in the Holy Cup and what that means for us. Then, of course, on the flip side, the cup of the wicked, right? Elsewhere, like Psalm 11, it says, they drink scorching wind. Destruction for those who are wicked. And then he uses this language of inheritance and lot and the land. And what he's talking about is, remember Joshua, when the land's divided up among the tribes, and then each family gets a piece of the land? He's using that as an imagery for his life. That God has given him a wonderful inheritance. His life is good because God is in charge of it. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. God is the giver of every good gift. And Psalm 16 is answering some questions raised in Psalm 15. Psalm 15 is all about living a godly, sanctified life. So someone may read Psalm 15 and say, well, why in the world would I want to do that? Why would I... Not for myself those pleasures. Why would I suffer? Why would I obey? And Psalm 16 says, because your reward is God's presence. God's very presence to you in word and sacrament 
is your reward. And David says there's nothing better than that. You can't go and buy or whatever you want to do to get something better. It's not going to happen. You wouldn't have enough money to buy anything. You're not going to find anything that could possibly be better than God's presence in his holy word and sacraments. How do we know that's what David's talking about? Because he says in the next part, I'll bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night season. I've set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. He says it's the Lord who gives me counsel, it's the Lord who guides me. Well, where did the Lord guide David? Primarily it was in his holy words. Where David sought guidance from the Lord's. Even at night, as he wrestled, we see this throughout the Psalms, right? The psalmist wrestles at night. You've all been there. You're up late at night. You have worries and anxieties and fears. Perhaps even being tempted and attacked by the devil. David says, even then, the Lord's word instructed me. Gave me wisdom. He was with me even then. And so the whole point of this section is that even, even if he's sick, even if he's near death, it doesn't ultimately matter if he has God. If he has the Lord, then he has enough, right? Psalm 73, 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. No matter what's going on, David wants us to see, as he prays this, and he wants us to pray this, that we would pray and confess that no matter what's going on, that Jesus is our portion, that he is our inheritance, that he is our lot. That if he is present with us in word and sacraments, then we have everything. Everything we could possibly need. That's why he can say, my flesh will rest in hope. He knows that no matter what happens to him, even if he should die, if he's going to be with the Lord, then it doesn't ultimately matter. He's praying for God to preserve him, but he knows if God should say, no, it's your time to go, that he can look forward in hope to what God has in store for him. And that's what the next verses confess. That God raises the dead and gives gladness. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right tender pleasures forevermore. Now the book of Acts tells us very clearly that this, these verses are a prophecy of what happened to Jesus. Right? Jesus died for our sins, for our salvation, so we may have all these gifts laid out here in this psalm. And yet, the Lord did not let him see corruption. His body didn't waste away in the grave. It was raised up on the third day. And David knew, and we know, that in Christ the same is true for us. That even if our body should rot in the grave, it's okay because Jesus is going to raise up that body. He will give us the path of life. He will enter us into his presence where there is complete fullness of joy that we can't even fathom. That we will have pleasures forever and ever. Last Wednesday night, about 11 o'clock, I got the call that Pastor Bolent had died. And one of the verses I shared with Linda because I was preparing for this, were verses 10 and 11. And I confessed these verses, we said these verses, right next to him as he lay there dead. What a beautiful confession that we can join in with David. 
that we can be next to a dead body of our loved one and confess that God's not going to let them just rot away into nothing, that he's going to raise them up. They will be beautiful. They'll be whole and perfect. That all the illnesses, all the things they suffered in this life will be gone. And it's because of what happened to Jesus. The reason we can pray these psalms, the reason we can pray these things and know that God could bring them to pass is because it's already happened in Jesus. He's already fulfilled the Psalter 100%. And so when we pray these words, we're praying them in and through Jesus. God sees us in his righteousness. And we be confident that what he did for Jesus, he will do for us. It's a wonderful thing. That's why this psalm has been so dear to Christians when they're sick. Because they can pray that even if I don't make it, God's going to raise me up. And so too, this psalm is a psalm for Palm Sunday. Because we enter into Holy Week knowing there's going to be a lot of bad things that happen over the course of Holy Week that we hear about. But in the end, he doesn't allow his Holy One to see corruption. He raises him up. For Jesus, for us, God will show us the path of life. He will give us the fullness of joy in his presence. We will have pleasures forever and ever. And when we know that, then all the things those gods offer seem ridiculous. They seem foolish. They seem worthless. So let's pray with David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. Amen. The peace of God passes on your saying, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.